I was successful from, from the start. At that point, I had amassed like 70,000. 70,000 from what would you start with? Like 500. 500 bucks. Yeah. 570,000. Yeah. That's pretty good. All right, guys, welcome back to another Funded Trader podcast. Today, we're joined by the one, the only, Pasquale. He's the top trader at the Funded Trader. He's got over 550K in payouts with the company. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Joining us all the way from Germany. That's great. Yeah. For so, so you had said that you're not doing many interviews. Yeah. I've only done one like uh, two and a half years ago with one other firm. Um, usually I turn down any interviews because um, I don't like the promotional side of the interviews. Um, I want to keep it uh, more educational like you do. Like uh, where I can talk more openly, more length in the interview. I don't like the 10 minute interviews where I just uh, promote the, com the company in the end. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty adamant on... Uh, not sitting here and asking like, oh, what are your favorite things? Or yeah. what is this? It's very much an open conversation. You know, I'm curious, obviously, as to how you think um, in the markets generally. That's why I sit here and I have these conversations. So obviously very grateful that you wanted to come on and have this conversation with myself and share a little bit of your story. So let's get into the story a little bit. Give us uh, some background. Maybe um, let's start when, when I first uh, uh, get into trading at all. So it's like um, almost 15 years ago now, like uh, in the end of uh, 2008, um, I clicked on a little banner uh, of uh, eToro, um, the brokerage. So God knows they had a lot of banners. Yeah. <laughs> so I clicked on that and um, went with them, uh, started an account. And they had this little thing like um, the race where you could bet on uh, on a man who is running a race. And there were like five mans. Um, each stands for a different currency. Like uh, you bet on the currency. Like maybe you com can compare it to option trading. And basically that, that was the game. It was just a gamble on, on the person running. So that's how I got into to Forex at all. But uh, overall... Um, I can say that um, I've been interested in, in investing like forever, I would say. Even in school, like when I'm 15, 16, I um, always looked at, at um, yeah, maybe stocks, but not in detail, of course, but uh, I always was like the, the main interest was, was in finance, yeah. So, yeah, and um, at that point, um, 2008, um, I was between school and college. So that's where... And you were what age around this time, 2008? Uh, well, around 20. Mm -hmm. Turning 20, yeah. So you're deciding between going to school? No, no. Um, I, I was uh, finished with school mm -hmm. and waiting for college. Okay. That's where, where I started trading. Well, it's a little bit different here in the U.S. So school is like high school yeah. you were done with? Okay. And yeah. you to go to university? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's right. So did you end up going to university? Yeah, sure. Yeah. I traded the whole time in university and... Most almost um, immediately, um, it was clear that uh, this this is my passion. This is uh, where I want to work. So I just kept trading all the time. Missed a lot of classes. Yeah. <laughs> what is so for the people listening trying to look for their passion, mm -hmm. right? What when did you know? Like to you, what was the indicator that this was the thing that you needed to focus on, and everything else was like secondary? Yeah, you could you could put it like that. So. As I said, I always had this this uh, deeper interest in, in investing, like uh, way before before I I, I uh, was introduced to forex. Mm -hmm. So uh, this was um, an easy way in in the industry. Like uh, at first, I thought only about stocks. I didn't know about forex. And which uh, exchange, like the U.S. stock exchange, or no? In, in general, I was like 15, yeah. 16, so I had no idea. <laughs> 
but uh, when I discovered Forex, uh, it was uh, like an easy way in. You just open an account, put in like 100, 100 euros and, and let's go. And uh, that's what I did. And um, well, fed a lot of accounts, of course, <laughs> the, the payment of uh, getting the education. But um, I think um, you could say that I always had this um, kind of curiosity to things. So critical thinking. I always wanted to know why something happens. So right from the start, when I lost my first account, <laughs> basically day one, um, I thought to myself, like, um, why, why is this is is this happening? So uh, why is is the euro moving? Why is uh, the US still moving? So I kept asking this my my whole life, like, in trading. Yeah, that's so your curiosity was peaked pretty early. Yeah, pretty early on. Basically, from the start, from you early on blowing this account, right, getting into it, what was the direction that you headed into? You Did you start to get mentorship, education, or did you just, like, self-education? Yeah, back back at a time, like, uh, 2010, 29, uh, 20, 2009, um, there was no real education uh, that you could access, like, today. So there was no YouTube mentorship. There was no Forex class. Obviously, there were books reads books at that time like uh, when you're 20 <laughs> yeah so um you had to do it the hard part so you have to had to do it uh, yourself so it was like uh, self-taught from from the beginning so um yeah you you research the internet the little information that you get yeah and put the puzzle together i guess that was like uh, the first two three years yeah I changed my, my approach at the beginning, started demo trading, mm-hmm. um, tried things out. I tried everything uh, like EAs, uh, different setups that other people posted in some forums. Like, you know, Forex Factory, they had a big forum back then. That's that's basically the the main community that existed at that point. Right. Yeah, yeah Forex Factory is like the Craigslist for anyone that knows that of, of Forex, like completely outdated UI, yeah. but they're just like, so much information on there if you really dig deep into it so so you were heavily like yourself looking on the internet looking into the ways to potentially uh trade different strategies potentially get better at trading and then you were doing self-education you were trading with brokerage accounts at around that time mm-hmm. where how long did the year eToro thing go on was that just a short-lived it was like one month and uh, because eToro was like um at that point, at that time, it was put like a game, mm-hmm. and uh, it always uh, um, had a look at more professional way. So I wanted the most professional way, mm-hmm. even um, if it's more difficult to learn. So uh, uh, back then, um, the next stop was a big broker, Alpari, UK. It's gone now, basically, mm-hmm. but uh, at that time, it was one of the biggest brokers in in the world and in Europe. Um, uh, very different time from the brokerage side um, compared to now, um, but uh, yeah, opened with them, yeah, and that that's why uh, where I got to to Metafor, uh, MetaTrader Four. What were some of the early challenges like with with trading with yourself as we start to get into you and more in the trading your trading career, right? So it sounds like you started with these really small accounts where you work in a job around this time to build up trading capital right like how did, how did this go down it was like no i was in university so so it was like um just my money i put up and yeah. luckily i i got successful very early on so because the first account i blew editoro um at that point i thought i thought to myself okay you have to to know better um to make this a success so um at that point um I kept learning in demo accounts until I was uh, um, very confident um, that a blow account is not uh, around the corner the next time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, when I started with uh, Alpari, like a few months later, um, I instantly had success. And uh, at that time, it wasn't like a strategy that I read somewhere. It's just like, keep improving by demo trading, like find, it, find my own strategy. That was the goal from, from the start. Because um, when I tried different things, um, it, it never worked out. Like uh, 
it was posted on any forum or yeah you were trying like other people's strategies yeah. other people's ideas all this stuff it was just external never actually was able to amount to anything in terms of profit and success and whatever well i'm put up my own strategy so yeah yeah at, at when i made the transition transition to to alpari it went quite well from from the beginning so i made like a three hundred dollars um, turn it into $1,000, $2,000. So at that point, I thought, yeah, I really, really got it. Yeah. So, and uh, luckily, I, I withdraw the 50% of, of the winnings. So, um, but um, basically after that, yeah, something happens in the market, I blew the account again. And it was around the time where brokers were very different. So, Nearly all uh, brokers were B-booking, so uh, prices were very different. Like uh, EURUSD uh, was spread like three pips was good, considered good. Um, so trading was very different, like execution types were different. And uh, at that point, like I started asking myself, well, what's what's behind that? Um, how is the, the from, from the point where I click on, on order, open an order, um, to the market, what's what's happening behind it? But um, I think it was too early for me to understand it, mm-hmm. and uh, I just kept going with the fifty percent profit that I, I withdrawn at the time. And um, actually, it was the time like uh, before, like the, the um, university was finished, like fifty uh, percent. So I, I went in the third semester, um, and uh, at that point, I had amassed like seventy thousand from from that investment so i was successful from from the start um but uh, 70 000 from what would you start with like 500 500 bucks yeah 570 000 yeah that's pretty good yeah i felt that what a legend <laughs> yeah I've, i felt that as well but uh actually when um when it was uh, a semester abroad in in uh, dublin um it it was a bit disconnected to my trading because there was a lot partying, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I lost a lot of the 70,000 in like a month. Yeah. Because it was, I wasn't really focused on, on trading anymore. You lost it clubbing or on the, in, no, no. in the markets? On the markets. Yeah. 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 Bad times. <laughs> but fun times in Dublin. Yeah. Don't want to miss it. Yeah. So all through university you're trading. Yeah. Right. You've had a lot of success. And then university ends, mm. right? What well, did you get your degree in, and then where did it go from there? It's just international mar- uh, management. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, right when I made the 70,000, I made my mind up that this is my job. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I didn't l- really care about uh, university anymore. And um, right after university, I kept thinking to myself, like, um, as I said before, how is this whole thing working? Like, how how do I get the quotes on my MetaTrader 4? And um, I always uh, wanted to get uh, behind the whole thing, like um, um, the risk as a trader is a big risk. As I uh, learned myself, like when I lost like 30, 35,000 of the 70,000, and I pretty much um, from that uh, point on, I wanted to be on the other side. I wanted to be on the broker side. Mm-hmm. And... Um, then it was like uh, ten, almost 10 years ago, a bit more, 10 years ago, 2012, um, I tried to start an own brokerage, uh, especially because at that time it was like 80, 90% people broker and stop hunting was a thing, like big Russian broker was doing it a lot. Can you explain like what stop hunting actually is in your well, in your perspective? It, it doesn't happen anymore, I think, uh, at least I, I never thought saw it like in the last eight years. But um, and I saw it only once on that broker, um, and they they manipulated the market like they could with the software. They they could really alter the price of a certain quote, like and increase it to thirty, forty pips. When you, when they know, okay, a lot of traders had their stop then. So they were. So it's like based on the order book, based on how many orders are sitting at a certain level. Yeah. They'll increase the actual quoted price to that level to yeah. liquidate all the positions. Yeah. They altered the the feed on the MT4 like for yeah. one quote. Yeah. 
that's pretty next level. Yeah. But you feel as though that's not occurring anymore. Nah, I never saw it like in the last eight years. And um, yeah, at that point I, I thought to myself, okay, like a lot of people brokers, a lot of bad execution, a lot of bad pricing, like three pips and, and URC is not good for, for scalping, for trading at all. Mm -hmm. um, and that was good. Like if you look at some, some more exotic pairs, it was like untradeable. And I came to to a broker like uh, Finifex mm -hmm. at that point, very small broker, but uh, they did it another way. That it it was the first uh, real ECN broker that I ever discovered, and um, that's um, with, because I wanted to do like I wanted to uh, trade like uh, with a broker like this, because like straight through processing, like perfect pricing, raw pricing, and um, as I said, I wanted to be on the other side of, of trading, like on the execution side. What year did this, the ECN STP brokers come out? Well, at 2011, 2010, that's what. Before we fully transition into that, because I do a lot of questions around the broker stuff, what strategy were you trading with originally? Was it scalping, was it intraday, was it swing trading? It's uh, basically the same that I use today, but it evolves over time. Like uh, no scalping, um, positional trading, no real fancy stuff. It's like easy, easy setup, everything easy. And because I, I wanted to know why prices move, I always uh, highly um, uh, kept highly the fundamentals of the market. So that's what I'm looking at, the fundamentals. Why is price moving? Why is it actually moving? Because... Um, uh, indicators, technical analysis is just a thing of the past. It's, it's looking at the price, what happened in the past. It doesn't give any indication what's in the future. You can can use it to to some extent when when you um, well want to find out some limitations in the markets. Yeah, that might be respected, but they don't have to be respected. If technical analysis would be the thing, then price would be moving like always in the same direction, right? So there's actually fundamentals is more important for price action, in my opinion. That's a very interesting take. So you're saying if the market predominantly was based simply after price action, there would be a lot more trending markets. Of course, yeah. because that's the major point then, yeah? Yeah. And every, everything has to be respected then, but that's not the case. Yeah. If, if Certainly not the case. Yeah. If something has to move because something is changing in the fundamentals, like anything can happen, um, then the price and, and the orders don't care about, about technical analysis or technical structure. They don't care. Now, around this time when you're deeply committed to learning trading, right, you're trying to figure out technicals, fundamentals, what were you studying that was leading you to fundamental analysis? What were you studying to help you understand the entire landscape of like really economics, right? Like what was some of the material maybe you were looking at? Yeah, um, basically again, Forex Factory, all that kind of stuff that everyone talks about, like, and I put together this, this whole puzzle myself. So I wanted to know, like, for example, I trade a lot of gold and uh, uh, I wanted to, to know why is gold moving? So you have two um, uh, two things in gold. You have actually gold um, fundamentals and you have US dollar um, fundamentals. Like those things move the market on gold. Um, and uh, later on, there were like a lot of stuff like Forex Life is a good source. Um, we, they have, they mainly look at fundamentals. They look uh, and on what's happening um, in the markets, especially in stock market, um, you have to look at um, the the whole schedule when news coming out. Why is this news impacting the U.S. dollar? Why is it impacting gold? So there are many many layers behind it, a, a certain move or or a certain um, news coming out. Um, like um, if you trade gold. Um, and uh, interest uh, rates are moving. So why are they moving? Is it already in the price? How much is in the price? What is the the market thinking? Like the the bigger banks, what what is what are they doing um, regarding like 
um, the funding rate. Um, and that's layer one, for example. Mm-hmm. So after that comes layer two, like are the banks, um, like as we saw this summer with the with the crypto banks, are they invested too much in, in some rate stuff? Like um, all this kind of stuff, stuff can, can move the market and um, we have to consider that. But how I learned it, it's just by doing. Like I kept improving by seeing things. It's just experience. Like uh, when something happens, you have to remind yourself in the future um, why it happened. Do you feel as though a lot of the decisions that you're making are based on intuition to an extent? Because I feel like a lot of this research that you can be doing, you were mentioning why, what do banks currently think about these interest rates? What do banks currently, how are they currently operating? How are they currently being affected right, by these decisions that are being made by rate hikes, et cetera? You can unpack a lot there. You could be thinking about what are the risks of this bank? Like for this bank that collapsed recently, you're talking about in crypto. One of the risks was obviously a bank, a run on the bank, you know, liquidating and then them holding long-term all these different mortgages and not being able to liquidate those positions. So yeah, they were, they were technically over leveraged, but like in a healthy environment, they weren't, but then all of a sudden the environment changed and they were completely screwed. Right. So like how deep do you really go in this dive and this research? Cause with TFT, I've noticed that I don't think you've had more than 10 payouts per se. They've just been, it's under 10, but then you've had over 500 K in withdrawals. Right. So you're getting paid out on average a ton from these, from these, uh, from each of these withdrawals. Right. So a lot of, are a lot of these, like you're saying, position trades, we're like just going all in on one, 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 uh, situation in the market that you fundamentally understand. You've seen many different times you understand and interpret and then you're, you know, putting a lot of the size onto that that position. Is that basically what you're doing? Yeah, that's basically what I'm doing. Yeah. But in general, trading with a firm is completely different for me than trading my own account. And I, tra- I don't trade my own account anymore mm-hmm. um, since I'm starting, I started with firms because mm-hmm. uh, I don't want to risk um, all on Forex. Because at the end of the day, what matters to me, at least, um, is like um, with my background, Mm-hmm. Um, I thought um, interesting model, but also very risky model for the firm. And um, in the end, I didn't believe, so I started to trade them like they were gone tomorrow. And like we see now, maybe I'm right. Very, very disconnected approach to the market, and you see where that's gotten you. Yeah, a ten payouts. Very yeah. interesting. And in the end. I'm not the guy that brags about the money. That's why I don't go to interviews. I could go mm-hmm. to any interviews. Oh, for the longest time, we had no idea who you were. Yeah. <laughs> we're like, how do we get in touch with this guy? <laughs> and uh, basically because um, I, I, I don't want to brag about the money because um, it doesn't matter to me that much. Um, it doesn't matter to me that much that somebody thinks that I'm the best trader ever or the worst trader ever. I don't care. I don't care about win rate. What's matters in the in the end is what what you take home. So let's start to get into the brokerage side. So you transitioned to open a brokerage um in what 2012, you said around yeah. that time. What went right when that happened and what went wrong? If you can share. Sure. Yeah. Of course. Um so the reason why I opened it um is because First, I wanted to trade as an ECN broker. I don't want to mess with all the B-Book brokers, bad execution, bad pricing. And uh, second, I wanted to be on the uh, I wanted to be on the other side of the risk. I want I didn't want to to risk my own money anymore. Okay. And uh, then I started to to collect information: how to start a broker, where to start one, what do I need? Yeah, uh, especially regarding regulations. Since we are in Germany, or I was in Germany at that time, um, and I didn't want to leave Germany, and um, well, quite a long, long time um, to to gather everything. And um, but um, during the time and during that uh, that road, I get a lot of information how the systems are working, how the whole process is working, like a broker, and um, well, I got a vast network of people um, who are in the business. Mm-hmm. And then 
I just, and as I told before, I always have the approach like professionalism. I don't want just um, to open a broker, like just to have it. So I want it to be like um, a good thing. Yeah. So because, um, and not just to make money, because uh, I always um, want to do the better thing for the trader, same as maybe you. Um, that's why we are sitting here, because I like what you're doing and how you do it. And uh, that's... Uh, I appreciate that. Pretty Thank different than, than, idea. than a lot of other um, companies in the business right now. And uh, that's what makes it different. And um, yeah, sorry to, to get a network of uh, the broker industries, like all the stuff behind it. And um, well, we came to the point that we needed regulation. And that's very tough um, if you start. From when you had your broker, it was technically unregulated? Um, we we started, but uh, we didn't onboard any client because we couldn't. We had no regulation. So I went out and searched for um, different opportunities to get this done. And uh, if you start a broker in Germany, you, you probably look at one and a half years to get your regulated broker. You need a ton of stuff we didn't have. Um, but what we had was um, like a setup, a technical setup that was almost perfect for the, for the time being. Like perfect execution, raw spreads like 0.3 USD, which was perfect at the time. Yeah? Mm. Um, and um, then uh, I get in touch with the German investment bank from Munich. And uh, basically they, they were very old school, like... Uh, old CEOs from the past, 90s, um, investors, all very old. Um, and they had problems uh, with their new, with the new uh, Forex world because people wanted to trade and their money managers wanted to trade on MT4. Um, they had several MT4s with different uh, entities, big banks. And uh, you were using MetaTrader yeah. as a platform back yeah. then, yeah. We had MetaTrader 4. Okay. And um, because that's that's the standard at the time, there was no MT5, and and almost no other solutions for for retails. Mm. And um, yeah, we we were in good talks with them. Um, I got to know the CEO pretty well, and basically they onboarded us. We used their banking license, and uh, they used our platform to to funnel their their fund managers. On the platform because they get they got ripped off by by the other brokers, and uh, basically we um, in Germany it's um, it's kind of where you use the the system of someone else like a bank um, you brand it like your own but you use uh, the license of the bank mm-hmm. and um, which is still it's going on today yeah that type of stuff yeah yeah it's difficult to do it right now but mm-hmm. uh, yeah back then it was very easy. And uh, we basically did the books for them. So the whole um, structure with Forex trading, we did it. What was their strategies back then? What were they, like, they were discretionarily trading? Or, like, how were they actually conducting, managing funds for clients through the FX market? They they had different, they were just um, a big investment bank who um, had a lot of fund managers, like, below them, mm-hmm. who were acquiring their own clients. So basically they just provided the platform to like a few hundred um, managers who onboard that. So like just introducing basically to the platform. They had the whole license. They did mm-hmm. they did a, a differently before. They managed their own funds and it was like a private bank for, for big individuals. And they onboarded like for the Forex market, the the typical fund managers that brought their own clients. And what was your role in this, in your platform? So what play, what part did you play in all yeah, this? I was like, the owner of the platform, mm-hmm. basically the CEO of the project, you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I was in direct contact with the CEO of the bank, but we were completely on, on our own. So um, we did everything. We did everything what, what matters with, with Forex for the bank which is um, not legal anymore. <laughs> but uh, as I said, they were pretty old school. They, they didn't care. They, they were, it was 
Would you say that around this time you knew per se what you were doing or were you learning a lot on the job? Yeah, it was basically learning by doing. Yeah, all the time, every day. You, uh, I remember um, when I traveled to, to Hamburg to different brokers at the time, big brokers in, in Germany, uh, when I talked to the, their people, the managing directors, the CEO, it was like at first it was mind-blowing because all the information they had. Like, and uh, I like to, to absorb it mm-hmm. and, and really use that in the future. And uh, I went to any meeting then, back then. Like um, I had good contacts with the, the CEO of the German branch of FXCM. Like I had uh, a weekly call with him. Every, every Wednesday we, we called at least for 10 minutes just to talk about things. And um, yeah, the networking is, is part of my job back then. And second part was like um, almost like a lawyer. You have to be constantly asking yourself, can I do that? What do I have to do to do that? All the compliance stuff. Because the bank was like, we don't care. And uh, that's why... They didn't care about compliance. They didn't care. Interesting. Yeah. It was rough. The time. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't sound too good. And and I had to learn it like the hard way because I had to make it right. And yeah. um, then uh, at first uh, the broker was like, because what I wanted in general was my own brokerage. So like I wanted to to um, to uh, get my own clients, like because they were the bank's clients in the end. Mm-hmm. They had contracts with the banks, not me. Because yeah, you were just like a like a platform provider right it's like an intermediary right. between them yeah. and their clients yeah but we we did all the banking stuff for them because they didn't have any personal for that they didn't know how to do it on the platform so that was the yeah not so legal part <laughs> were you building like technology to deliver the reports and stuff or how are you going yeah. about all that we didn't deliver or we didn't produce any own tech we just acquired the best tech that's out there mm. and it was as I said, through through other people that I got to know, that I networked with, so I got to know what they are using, like what's good, like how does it work, and basically I put together all good stuff mm-hmm. and to make the broker work. Would you say, uh, as you're meeting or working with the CEO or COO, right, in this this team, um, how much did you learn, right, and how important was it to be connected with? executives in a company versus previously you were like kind of just like an, a trader an entrepreneur you know more on your own your own team right like how how much did you grow from working with their team um with them not so much just uh, that uh, i didn't want to to be with them forever because i knew at some point it's it's going to be bad because they didn't care about compliance and uh, they did all this stuff and yeah, and I think they, they were gone in 2020. Really? Yeah. Due to what? Compliance. Had audit? Yeah. Basically, they, they, uh, they had an, an, another company where... They fell victim? No, they, they had another company. They were trading, insider trading, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Now how, um, as we get into compliance, right? And you had no background in compliance, right? Mm-hmm. You were just researching how to be how to be the most compliant, you know, trying to look at the regulation that exists and how to navigate it and document, tons of documentation, I'm sure, and stuff like that, um, screenshot communications, keeping track of all of that, right? How how vast or how how hard would you say is it to be compliant, depending on the industry, specifically in finance? If you, if you start out and you don't know what you're doing, you're done. I agree. And... Uh, if you, 100%. Yeah. If you've been at the task, it's easy. Because you, you, you've been there. You, and as I said, you, when, you, when you open a, a business like that, you, 90% of the time you're thinking like a lawyer. Like, can I do this? Yeah, lawyers have an extreme advantage in terms of yeah. getting into business. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Like a business run by an attorney is very, has a good chance, but also has a chance of them, depending what side they decide to sit on, to go in the opposite direction to skate around the law uh, too much yeah to an extent right yeah so yeah that's something that i've learned because as an early as a young business owner i have no like my back my background is not compliance right so hiring the like a team member who has a background in compliance who was plugged into 
a bank and built out an entire compliance department for their bank, audited the whole entire department, all of this. I've learned a lot from working with him. And I'm like, this is, this situation is way beyond like what I could ever, could ever have imagined, mm. right? It's like, you have to be extremely detailed. You have to read in between all the lines. Like the rules are not as stated. The rules are as interpreted. Yeah. Right. So that's a whole lesson that, that I've learned. Um, so it sounds like you got, you know, to learn that through doing with this, this bank that you're working with. So at what point did you, uh, distance yourself from this bank? Not to trust. I, I, uh, started another brokerage mm -hmm. this time FCA broker in the UK, mm -hmm. um, because I wanted to do it right. And, uh, it was a more sophisticated broker. Like the one that I put up first for the bank, it was like uh, just empty for basic stuff, um, but it worked in the end. And uh, the second one was like uh, more on the tech side. Like I put up different hubs, like different liquidity, um, manage the liquidity on the proper scale. Mm -hmm. um, also reporting for, for all that kind of stuff was easier that way. Um, so a lot of automation too. Um, basically, on the tech side, a hundred times um, more than before and more into detail because I, I know the stuff that worked and didn't work at the lower end brokerage. And uh, again, worked with them. And in uh, 2015, 2016, um, I gave them the whole business and stayed on for two years as a compliant, uh, um, so to the CEO. Yeah. So in terms of the brokerage, what was the main goal? You're saying that you learned some things to do, some things not to do, and then you took those things and you brought in automation, you brought in technology, I'm assuming, and it's patient to try to monetize things more. Mm. What, what exactly, as a brokerage, were you monetizing? Clients. Clients. To, to make the book. To, so let's get into that. So in terms of clients that can go one of two directions, one could be, oh, we want more volume from clients, right? Or what is the other direction, like mar making the market? Mm. What does that include, making the market? Well, different different approaches to that. Mm -hmm. What we did, because I don't want to rip off clients, um, we did it or we'd like to do it in the, in the modest way. So where we basically make it like um, um, more in a better way, like uh, for the company, mm -hmm. but also for the clients, mm -hmm. better execution because they have instant e execution. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and um, for the for the company, it's um, because the, the bank, um, they want to have some turnover of the losing clients, um, which is not just the fee. Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, you have to put up different systems for that. Mm -hmm. um, aggressive systems, more moderate systems, um, hatching systems, all that kind of stuff. Um, nowadays, I think it's easier than then um, because of just more sophisticated software. Um, AIs play a big role, I think, right now and in the future um, in the analyzing part. It was just finding finding um, the spot where you can execute it better. Um, and of course, the the whole structure behind it makes a big difference. Like how you execute it uh, against certain liquidities. Because let's say in a perfect world, um, you warehouse your bad clients and you send your good clients. Uh, to a liquidity provider. Yeah. yeah. In a perfect world, um, where you just send good clients, you have like two days when the liquidity says, mm, I don't like you anymore. Because <laughs> yeah. they are on the other end um, who uh, who are your counterpart right now. Yeah. So, um, but why, let's pause there. Why do you, at the core of it, right? Because we've talked about these things as well, right? In terms of directing flow at liquidity providers, why would they want to turn down profitable trading flow yeah because they are the counterpart and they earn money by losing traders because that's the flow of the money and you can have like 
it depends what what liquidity do you, do you, that you have like mm -hmm. um do you have a, a, just a broker as a liquidity do you have tier one banks do you have prime of primes um some aggregated liquidity is totally different for them all and you have to manage them all mm -hmm. if you if you want to to offer a good price because you can do it the easy way just one liquidity you get one price but what if something happens to that to that price stream like mm -hmm. um especially exotic pairs what we had at that time um especially ruble pairs russian ruble they were at times completely down like for hours so uh what we did like onboarded different liquidities streamlined their their feed so we have more stable feeds mm -hmm. and um they turn you down um because they don't make any money of good traders. So you're in your mind, you're like, all right, let's aggregate liquidity so that as one liquidity provider decides that they don't want this directional flow because you're pushing maybe profitable traders towards that flow, you would then have another liquidity provider that would then become available and the flow could go there. And then another liquidity provider, like that's like one idea or one yeah. way kind of of going about it. It's, it's the idea, but... It's more difficult, like yeah, yeah. and there are systems way to more that, complex. Yeah, there are systems to that where you can split up trades. Like you don't send a hundred lots or thousand lots of a real trader to a liquidity. You you are gone with them. Mm -hmm. They they label you toxic, and then mm -hmm. you get worse pricing of them. Like uh, they alter the price to yeah. Like, they don't want the risky yeah. flow. That's that risky, right? Yeah, yeah, the exposure. Yeah, yeah, because at the core of it, it's it's. From someone who's been worked in the brokerage industry for a long time, at the core of the financial markets, it's very much a game of kind of winners and losers. Mm. And to an extent. The only game. It's yeah. like uh, if you look at brokers, after the regulation update, they have to put up a banner where they say how many traders are losing. And it's roughly 70%. So you know where the money lies. Because... Um, if you're a trader, you have to think how, and that's what I'm thinking. Like right in the beginning, mm -hmm. um, what's what's happened to my to my order? Like when I press um, buy or sell order, so it goes to the broker. Uncle Sam's like, yeah. <laughs> it depends depends how the broker works, but let's say it's an STP broker mm -hmm. for the for the sake of it. So, so the broker gets my my order. They label me good. They send it to their, let's say, easy liquidity. And uh, the liquidity, again, either is the counterpart to the broker, which they don't know, or they send it again to the next step. But at the end, there's always something who is the counterpart to my trade. And if I'm winning, he's losing. That's the base of it. Mm -hmm. And it, it doesn't depend if the... The chain is like five steps or one step with a B-Book broker. That's my counterpart. Yeah, that's one thing that I've learned from just generally working within this industry, getting more intimate. It, it's very interesting. It's if you, like you're saying, directing the flow at certain LPs or whatever, at the end of the day, somebody is betting against you. Yeah. Whether it's this LP, the next LP, the next LP, or the next one. Right. And that's in my mind, I was like, wow, this is a great, this is a very interesting, complex system that we're all playing in here, this, this entire market. So let's talk about in terms of price streams, right? What if we had three price streams, like one, two, three, right? And they're all going forward. What would change or amend the price stream to potentially go in like one direction versus going in another direction versus going in another direction, right? Like what is, making the market right what is making these price streams essentially have different behaviors is it the amount of orders you know mm -hmm. that's in all of those books and this is might might be very minuscule but those nuanced differences as we know make all the difference so like what in your mind is affecting the price streams well nowadays it should be automated like uh, you should be having a hub for that mm -hmm. or a bridge or whatever mm -hmm. Um, who does this on an automated uh, scale? Like uh, you have an, an order like ten lots, um, which is not that high, but quite high for for some liquidities. And um, basically, they you get different prices. Like on every quote, you get different prices, and you have a 
when you have a good good system, um, you send the order automatically in increments to the best price that you get, and you offer the the client a different price, of course. Mm-hmm. So they get the first profit for you mm-hmm. if you have a good system behind it. Then you have fee structure, blah blah blah, all the yeah, stuff. Yeah. But but on on liquidity, what makes the market is now it's it, I think it's easier if you have a good setup. Back then, it's not that easy, and you just have to send it to the best pricing option. Yeah. And that creates the the whole market, the whole liquidity in a because forex is is the biggest market in the world. So it doesn't matter if one bank executes like a huge amount um, or the other less. It it doesn't really matter. So, but uh, all these liquidity providers or banks in the end, most of the time, they they are the market. They're choosing the end game. Yeah, how the price is going. In the end they executed on a much higher level on the fed level mm-hmm. like they getting so the order. it's very much a game of like it's the way that i understand it is there's obviously spread there's commission there's money to be made off of that stuff but it's more so uh the execution in terms of if i'm executing at 1.1 you know and it's a and it's a sell or something they're trying to execute at 1.15 yeah right they're trying to execute at a price a little bit higher than you so every time, then when you close, you know, you're exiting at 1.08, but like they're exiting at 1.06 or something, right? Like they're trying to close lower and make more off of you. Yeah. So they're consistently giving you a worse price. Yeah. To make those. Yeah. Beyond the spread. Like yeah. all that. Yeah. And that's why you want to to spread out your orders that you you won't get sanctioned by your liquidity. What I would be afraid of is like US regulators, as we see right now, um, they're kind of... Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> They are the kind of regulators, they take action first and the company can explain later. Mm-hmm. So if I would be the firm, I wouldn't put up the risk at all. I would find different solutions. In terms of bat, like putting the flow to a broker. Yeah, yeah. yeah. because they can argue that, like that. Mm-hmm. And and doesn't matter what, what the legal team says because as we see right now, they take action. Yep. And, and you get a... You, you're out of well I think a big part of what's going on right now is the fact that there was flow going through to an extent and the brokers in the US or Canada and there's you know trading CFDs and this and that um, I think that's a big part of it that's interesting yeah I think but I think in, in MFF context right now it's a weak point because um, they don't really put the the market through. Uh, they don't really put the the trades through the market. It was like a slim, slim, slim kind. Uh, mm-hmm. Because if it, I think it's it would be worse if if it was more. Um, because uh, then you could argue, and actually our lawyers told us as well. Um, is um, in America you have the problem if you if you are in the market at some extent and. Uh, manipulate the whole market with a product that isn't regulated. So, and that's if they, let's say, put up like 30% of their traders to the market as an unregulated entity, they would uh, manipulate the, the whole market. Isn't that part of, that's part of though, are they being alleged of doing that at uh, the moment? I think it might be part of it. Um, I think it's just a... I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Though. It's just the if the counts are, as far as I remember, it's just misleading, which is the wording on the website, mm-hmm. and uh, the other things are the actual trading if they are broke. But uh, I think with them, well, they they are fighting the the fight for the firms right now, mm-hmm. and um, I think it's five things that are that will be will be matter in the court. It's like uh, first uh, manipulation point which isn't even account because they can't prove it, just the, the texts. And I think it's just in there to to make them, them look bad in front, front of the jury. Really bad. Yeah. But uh, on the other hand, they can prove that they actually pay out mm-hmm. and don't even ask. Um, I was funded with them and uh, I got paid every time. No questions asked. Even if you violate it, you get paid 50%. Like, I think they, they were on the side like they wanted to do it good but they actually on the b-booking side like they operated the business like a b-book broker 
mm-hmm. basically. If, I mean, if if that's the point, um, every broker has to be banned because everyone do it. It's, it's a big, it's a big problem <laughs> and uh, a wider problem. Like banks are getting fined for that all the time. Yeah. So that's not the problem here. Mm-hmm. I think the the biggest problem is like first the uh, the manipulation. We got that out. Um, uh, the misleading. Okay, they get fined for that. Blah blah blah. Put up different wording on the website. They're good. Um, Third thing um, is how they classify the funds. I think that that will be a big point. Um, are these funds that traders like put up, mo- like money laundering to an extent? Mm, not not exactly, but are these funds uh, that people pay um, classified as investment products? Like, well, they are in classified as investors at yeah. the moment. Yeah, that's what yeah. they're trying, and that's yeah. a big point. Yeah, the way I've always thought about it was. Similar to what you're saying, how this is a wider, the wider financial in, uh, institutions, wider financial markets is a product of who wants to buy, who wants to sell, who wants to assume the risk of this position at the core at the end of the day, right? So I've always thought of it as in terms of, I mean, any any business model, right? You're trying to find a profitable way of conducting your business. You're trying to offer a product where you give the consumer what they have been told, you know, that they're going to receive. Um, and then you're trying to find an edge mm. in, yeah. in whatever market that you're in, right? If you're in the pet store business, like you're trying to find an edge in terms of pricing amongst your competitors or branding or whatever, right? And so I think in the business, there's obviously the model in terms of the challenge that you're offering, but then at the core of it, there's also the model in terms of what are the percentage of people that are failing, that are passing, mm. that are getting payouts, all of this. Um, and there is a model there. There's definitely a model there, but um, I won't personally comment directly on them, but I always did wonder um, generally, right, how do you maneuver with certain targets? Because you were saying the odds of um, passing and fail, like those can all, those are things that on the brokerage is 70%. And then with funding companies, depending on how you set up your rules, it could be, could be different. And so the setup of the rules, I think is really key in terms of the model. And if you choose to make the rules too easy, but then you choose to manipulate things otherwise, then obviously that's something that can be deemed as very inappropriate. Um, so it's a tricky, tricky type of thing. Like if you want to act in good faith, you have stricter rules, right? You give the people what they're paying for, and then you don't have to do all this nefarious stuff at the end of the day. To an extent. What do you think about that? To an extent, but uh, I think what MFF was doing, like with the whole uh, manipulation is um wasn't very aggressive um i can think i of, do i do want to hear about this yeah i think uh i can think of a lot of other firms who are doing it a lot more aggressive mm-hmm. and um so th- they they did like a people broker but and you're I, saying as far you're saying as far as like the price streams and yeah. the grouping and all this yeah it's basic stuff it's very yeah and in uh, terms of the wider brokerage market yeah. it's stuff that's happening all the time yeah, yeah. And and no big deal, but um, their problem is they they spoke about it, like also internally, but like how they they spoke about it is is the wrong thing, mm-hmm. like unprofessional, yeah. Um, but in the end, um, they paid out, and that matters. Mm-hmm. A lot of firms don't pay out. I'll but tell you one of the mistakes that we made. One of the mistakes that we made was um, we're like so stubborn. So me and my partner love to build stuff on our own. We like to, you know, control everything. And one of the mistakes that we made was limiting ourselves in terms of understanding the technology or the tools that are available to us to do what you're saying. Mm. We built, we started building a ton of tools ourselves based on our ideas and what we thought uh, uh, we could utilize to then monetize the data, right? Like building our own internal systems and tonal, internal dashboards trying to use machine learning, right? All these things. But there are tools available to yeah. do that stuff. And good tools. And really good tools. So I'm like, <laughs> like we should have just without those tools earlier. In the end, I'm like, you wanted to do the good thing. You wanted to provide the traders with a with a solution. Yeah. And not just uh, grabbing some some people left and right. Yeah. Yeah. If you're like a fund and you're buying like consumer credit card data mm. or you're buying... Uh, data based on uh, routing of ships throughout the entire world and 
maybe there's a delay in like a ship and then you're, you know that the supply chain is going to be disrupted and then you're going to make a play on that stock because the supply chain is disrupted, right? Like this is very similar. It's like, all right, we have all this retail trading flow. Um, but I will say this, we have been, we have definitely, it's interesting, like in, in one of these emails, uh, there's this communication that retail trading flow is, is unmonetizable. Mm. And I will say this, my partner has definitely uh, circumvented that like feedback so many times mm. and has just been like, no, like we, we can find, you yeah, know, we definitely, we can find alpha in, in yeah. this, but we've been told that before. Yeah. For sure. I think there, there are systems out there who, who can manage that. Mm -hmm. And even if it's a small part, it's it's a part of the whole uh, business. Like you have to tweak your your settings on the one side to fit your settings on the other side. So it's it's all combined. And yeah, one of the one of the things that we did as we unpack this subject is like the King's program, right? That mm -hmm. we have with from the trader. There's a certain amount of notional volume that is required, right? And everyone's like, fuck, like, why you guys have this? Like, this is the dumbest thing ever. But for us internally, we put that number because we realized that after that number, we can actually do analysis on that trading flow and, and actually draw deeper insights. Yeah. And one big part that you mentioned is like, you want to take control and you have to have control um, when you want to do that. Like, I'm, I'm not a big fa fan of uh, third party brokers because what tells me like at some point they will need something like to to take control like mm -hmm. you can't do it with with a third party broker. and it's a bit conflicting yeah to work with them to be yeah. to be honest Completely. with you yeah costs a, a ton like uh that's all deducted from the revenue yeah and and uh you you don't have control of the pricing you don't have to control and that's a big asset of your of your company like oh yeah traders and the platform mm -hmm. if if one of them is gone you're out of business yeah so in my mind you know as i've been learning about this company and obviously the growth on funded traders has been insane um to this point right it's been crazy and we've been trying to upgrade the infrastructure of the business you know but we work with third-party brokers right now mm. so as i've been learning i'm understand i understand fundamentally like how crucial it potentially is to get access to your own platform, your own license, so that you can do the things that you're speaking about. But then right now, there's obviously a huge attack because people in the market are saying, oh, the people that have access to their own systems, their own platform, their own broker, there's a lot of manipulation that can go on. Yeah. You know, so there's like this attack on it. But the reality is you, the business needs to trend in, in, in that direction and have the infrastructure to truly survive and and to thrive to an extent. That's not to say that the business needs to nefariously fuck everyone over, but just in terms of being able to make the market in a way that creates the product that we're able to sustain and all this and grow the business, whatever, right? Like that is the direction that the the company needs to needs to go into. So, you know, based on everything that's going on, right? How do you, in your opinion, circumvent the idea of like fucking over clients if you have your own platform? Like how do you, how would you do it if you were to do it yourself? To fuck it over? <laughs> no, to, to keep it going. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, um, as I told before, um, I'm the kind of guy who wants to help and, and, and don't want to be the the guy who just wants to, to take money from, from clients. So what I would do, as I explained, um, is like um, find the ratio like to, to be good enough. But... Uh, bad enough so the the product itself survives because what's what's in for the for the trader if if you have the perfect product but the company is at risk like you don't get your pearls next month because the, the company goes down mm -hmm. so i would rather uh, trade with the company who is moderate pricing but i know from from their complete structure they're here to stay and they're here to to make the good thing and especially if uh, the company has like a hedge fund behind it mm -hmm. or something like that, there is the mechanism. Like uh, they don't have to fuck you over mm -hmm. because they they have the second revenue stream. So that's uh, in my opinion, and the, it it has to be done because um, with all the attack right now, um, there there will be change. That's why it's like so such an interesting model. Yeah, at its core. Yeah, you know because the the decision-making and all that truly is down to the individual. Yeah. 
right? And I've said it in the past, and I've said it again, like, it's a it's a meritocracy in the sense that you get what you deserve, you know? You trade, you get trade, you know, you earn money, you earn money, you get the money. Yeah. But if you can't trade, you can't trade, and then you got to get better. Yeah, in my example, because um, uh, I really know how the execution side is working, mm -hmm. I, uh, I execute it differently on, on firms. So, like, I calculate in additional spreads, I calculate in mm -hmm. additional slippage that might happen. There's some people in this room that do that too. Yeah. Yeah. I think with time, people getting better to understand it, they have to, because um, that's the only uh, model that works because you, you can't put up so, like instant execution. Mm -hmm. um, and um, yeah, that's maybe the, the thing that, that will change in the next month. Um, with all that kind of stuff that goes down right now, um, firms will be, I think, more clear mm -hmm. and have to be more clear what they are and how they work. Industry is growing, going through growing pains yeah. at the moment. Um, doesn't mean it's going to die, but it does mean that there's going to be a lot of changes um, and there's going to be a lot of opportunity in the market too for new new firms, right? New companies to rise up and to do things the right way and potentially spend a lot of money on compliance from the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, and it reminded me like 10 years ago, the brokerage business, because a lot of fuckery, a lot of ebook brokers, a lot of bad things like where you have to choose or trade up with them and big, big brokers are. Oh, that's why they put the shiny ECN on everything yeah. now, right? Yeah. yeah. And then a few years later, the business evolved. Like nowadays, they all SCP them back. Uh, book them as well but not mm -hmm. as aggressively mm -hmm. so it's a more it's a better better place right now uh, like if you if you're good and you trade with a broker you you won't get fucked over mm -hmm. like and same as uh, from business like it reminds me of that phase and i think it's high time right now um it's do or die for america at least mm -hmm. um because um you have just two ways right now yeah i definitely think that um Like you're saying, it's a groundbreaking time in the in, in the entire industry. In terms of, you talked to me before about something about binary options. Yeah. So how does that? How is that similar? Yeah, and like it wasn't like 2015 or 16. There was this huge run on on binary options, like these small binary options brokers, and the uh, uh, the regulators they they didn't like the model because it was like gambling, but also like. Uh, a real investment opportunity mm -hmm. and they outright banned them. They didn't ask them, like, just take the action. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and... Uh, yeah, when they truly don't like something, it's going to be a sweeping... Yeah. The whole industry will just get wiped out. Yeah. Especially yeah. in the US. Yeah. I think other places, like, what what we find out in, in Europe, like, in, in Germany as well, and in, in the UK, they don't really talk about firms, the regulators. So, but I think if the US moves... Like the at least the FCA in, in England moves second because mm. they have the, the same approach, like consumer protection. So they act. Um, for us, except uh, as an example, like in, in Germany, also other European countries like mainland, um, they don't have that uh, that assignment to to protect the consumer. They more or less protect the banks. So interesting. Very different. Very different. Yeah. Very interesting approach. Well, listen, I think that um, you've shared a lot of insights that you've learned, you know, over the last 10 years. Um, it sounds like you're optimistic about the industry in general. You understand the industry pretty in depth um, to this point. What is some final feedback or like advice you have for anyone that's in the industry right now that's even trading on brokerages, right? What do they need to, to learn right now that they're maybe not thinking about? Going back to, to trading, if you want to do it like in a more relaxed way, I encourage encourage everyone to to step a bit slower, like like slow down. Um, that's the key. Like example, top tier trader, they put the five lot minimum on certain accounts, and I've been trading with them uh, a long time, and when they put up the five lot, I made payouts every time, like for month. Mm -hmm. and good payouts like 30k it's not 150 I saw a picture of someone yesterday that you're on the leaderboard for them right yeah right now yeah and uh, and uh, at the same time that I made profits with them 
I lost accounts with other firms where I didn't put the five lot. So my, my uh, advice is to slow down. Then you will manage to do it. Well, listen, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming all the way from Germany and uh, doing this doing this podcast, second pod. And yeah, thanks for being here, Pasquale. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it was, was nice. Nice, good. Nice.